you're visiting today, today we're glad that you, you're here. Uh, we just finished a series on uh, the book of Psalms. And uh, so I'm going to do uh, two, two sermons on, on the importance of leadership. So let me, uh, let me begin this way. You know, the beginning of, of a new year always presents both opportunities and challenges, don't they? We saw this in the past year. There's opportunities for us who are believers in Christ, especially, because there's the gospel of hope. And, and in that gospel revealed in the scripture, we discover this God that we can know. You can know God this year. And you can know him as a God who's gracious, not only every year, but according to Jeremiah, every, every day, his mercies are new. I, 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 I rest in that. Great hope, great opportunity. But there are also great challenges because uh, can we all admit that there's evil in this world uh, and it's real? That, that we still find ourselves, even as believers, if you're a Christian, still under the effects of the curse in this world due to sin. There's real sin. And therefore theologians talk about how we live in the already and the not yet. You've heard us say that many times. The kingdom of God has come. It's come in power. And the Holy Spirit is transformative. But it's, it's come, but not yet, in its consummation when there will be a day when Christ comes back and all sin will be eradicated and death will be eradicated and all things will be new. So there's this challenge, though, that there's sin that's still there. Now, let me, the reason I tell you that is what's true of you as an individual is also true for us as a church. Uh, there are opportunity and, and there are challenges. And this is a particularly important year in the life of Redeemer because we will choose from among us men who will be servant leaders, hopefully. And so we need to be careful of the men that we choose. Now I can tell you that in the 18 years... That, I, that Redeemers existed. For y'all that don't know, I came and started Redeemer 18 years ago. There has been no division among the leadership. There's been disagreement from time to time. But we stayed lockstep, and the reason being because we keep it simple. They were on the mission. And the mission is to reach the lost, those who are willing to admit here in this room, if you don't know Christ, that you've come to the end of your rope, that there's no health in you, we preach Christ so that you might be saved and have that hope. But also, we are here to equip believers to serve. And so it's important that we choose men who have the same vision, who are willing to walk in lockstep together for this great mission to preach Jesus Christ because if we don't do that, let me tell you what's going to happen to Redeemer. It will become unhealthy. And ultimately it will be irrelevant. You've heard me say that if we don't gather, God scatters. That's exactly what happened to Israel. They were to gather the nations, but they were scattered. Why? Because they weren't concerned about the nations. They were concerned about themselves. And so if we become concerned about ourselves and this program and that program, rather than being concerned not only for Athens, but for the nations. 
It will be irrelevant. And we'll start disliking each other. Now, our text this morning. Uh, I chose because one of my elders said, you know, you ought to look at Job because really Job's about leadership. And so I obeyed. And I'm glad I did because it's, it's amazing. I just got through studying the book of Job uh, earlier in December. What we can learn about leadership in this man's life, he's the penultimate of a, of a great man, of a man who's a leader. Now, I'm going to do something different this morning. As you probably noticed, that y'all are going, wow, you know, that's a lot of reading to do. I'm not going to read all of it. I'm going to refer to it. And that's kind of a first for me, so we'll see how this goes. Um, but this is the Word of God. It's powerful. It's transformative. So let's pray together, and then let's get going. Oh, Lord, our God, we thank you. There's hope. There is hope because our Lord Jesus Christ has come into this world born in a manger to be the second Adam, to be our substitute, to bear the curse we so deserve. He buried our sin and was raised and has made all things new, including the hearts of those who bend their knee and rest in Christ. And Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have given us the church, that, that Christianity is not a, a, a religion of the mind, or just our hearts only, but to be united to you is to be united to one another, is to be part of the body. What a blessing. And we thank you for what you have done here at Redeemer. And we pray that you would continue to be merciful to us that we do not get off course. And so, Lord, we pray that you would choose from among us men who love God and who love people and yet know that they are completely, in and of themselves, unworthy. Father, I pray that you would give uh, men and women hearts and desires to take responsibility in the body of Christ, to care for her the way a husband would care for his bride or a mother with her own child, and not neglect your bride. And so, Lord, we pray that you would raise up leaders like this, we ask it in your name and for your sake. Amen. The, the reason I believe that Redeemer has stayed on track, not perfectly, uh, in her short existence is for this reason. Redeemer is not a strategy-driven church but a philosophically driven church. I want to explain what I mean by that. Uh, strategies, though sincere and, and often effective, uh, and the desire to reach the culture can, can often cater to the culture. And not even understand the culture any longer as things shift. A case in point would be in Russia. What, what we would do here that might be effective 
uh, would not necessarily be effective for the Russians. But to be a philosophically driven church is simply to say that we know exactly why we exist and how it will minister the unchanging gospel to changing cultures. Things that are rapidly changing. Uh, For this reason, we've worked hard to establish the DNA at Redeemer. Kind of like when the baby is born, that's the DNA. And that baby will grow out of that DNA. It's our desire that the year 2115, 100 years from now, after you're dead and gone, even you young people, that on this corner, in this place, from this pulpit, we preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. That He's come in the world to die for sinners, and He's been raised as a sign of our justification. Now let me tell you one thing that's pounded into the head of our leaders, and I think both our men and women would agree with this. If you've been in a leadership position, is we say that so goes leadership, so goes Redeemer. We have this other saying, it's called the T-D-O-E-E, the teach, demonstrate, observe, evaluate, and encourage. And I tell these elders and myself when we stand in front of y'all, we're demonstrating. We've taken vows to you. Uh, And either we're helping you understand the gospel better, not so much by what we say, but how we live our lives. And so it's important that we choose leaders uh, who buy into uh, this mission. Now, the reason I chose Job is because one of my elders said, preach on Job. But as I looked at this, I see why he said this. Because it's a wonderful template for men and women uh, who want to lead uh, this congregation. All right, now, I need to give you the context to really fully appreciate uh, the life of Job and his leadership. Job is one of the oldest books of the Bible. And what's very interesting about one of the oldest books of the Bible is it deals with the question of the problem of evil in this world. To give you a theological term so you can go to lunch and use it on somebody, it's called a theodicy. And a theodicy, according to theologians, is the vindication of the goodness of God and His providence, the things that He's doing in this world in light of the existence of evil. In fact, probably if the realities of this world have hit you pretty hard at some point in your life, the book of Job has been meaningful to you. Because you're wrestling with what is going on. Alexander McLaren, a great preacher, said that every young minister should focus on the book of Job because there's a broken heart in every pew. I go down through this room, I guarantee you there are people right here on the verge of just being overwhelmed and maybe to the point of a crisis of faith. But what's interesting about Job is more than a theodicy. 
This book is addressing the problem of what seems to be absolute evil coming upon a righteous man. A man who's blameless, a man who loves God. It's not a suffering that's punitive. We, we often suffer, don't we, because of our own sin. I do. Things I say are things I do. But in this case, that's not the case. Now what's amazing is that nowhere in this book is it ever explained to Job why the suffering. And he doesn't go, oh, okay, I understand why this discipline, I understand why all these calamities have come into my life. No, we know. But he doesn't know. And he is caught up in this cosmic battle, this uh, theodicy. All he knew was that devastation came in his life. But let me tell you something about Job. He said, blessed be the name of the Lord. So there's a lot to learn. And uh, the, so here's, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to do my points and we'll turn, look at the, the bulletin. This is God's word. And the first thing to see about our text is that Job was a great man. Notice what it says in verses 1 through 3. Uh, there was a man in the land of us whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright and one who feared God and turned away from evil. And there were born to him seven sons and three daughters, and he possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. So that this man was the greatest of all the people of the earth. It's pretty clear that the writer of the book is wanting us to understand what kind of man we're dealing with. But not only is he, he, is he a great man, but according to verse 3 it says that he was the greatest man of all the people of the East. I, maybe you can't identify with that. But Job could. In fact, if you go to Job 29, okay, he's having a discourse with his friends who are saying, obviously you've sinned. Obviously there's something wrong in your life. Obviously you've done something wrong. Who are you to argue with God? And so there's this discourse that takes place. We're in the prologue right now. And then there's a discourse and there's an epilogue we're going to look at next week. But here in this discourse, in the, I mean it's in the discourse, he's reminiscing about his life before he lost his wife, I mean his children and his health and all his service and everything that he had. And this is what he says about himself. Uh, people listen to me expectantly, waiting in silence for my counsel. After I had spoken, they spoke no more. My words fell gently on their ears. And they waited for me as for showers and drank in my words as the spring rain. And when I smiled at them, they, scare, they scarcely believed it. The light of my face was precious to them. I chose the way for them and sat as their chief. I dwelt as kings among his troops. No false humility here, is there? He knew it was the blessing of God upon him. He knew the position that God had given him and all the blessings that came uh, from God. 
I know you've heard me quote this many times, but John Calvin said, there are two things that should humble you in your life if you're a believer. One are your sins. And the other are the gifts He gives you. And the greater the portion of both should be the greater your humility. Job lived a great life. He was a great man. Now let me ask you this. Do you think that he came into that place because he was lazy? Do you think he was an undisciplined man? Just make enough money to get by, buy tickets, two-week vacation. That's not the great life. You see, greatness always comes with great discipline. There's something greater than yourself. And this cuts two ways. Number one, for those who want to glorify themselves. I mean, Job was not the only great man at that time. I'm sure that those who attacked his property, there were great leaders among the Sabaeans, the Chaldeans. Uh, But if they became leaders, trust me, it was because they took responsibility They were disciplined. You'll never be a leader. Uh, You'll never, and you should want to be. Every every man and woman in here should desire. As a matter of fact, Paul says it, to desire the office. You know why? Because it gives you more opportunity. But here it's clear that for Job, his discipline and his greatness came for his desire To glorify God. His success and all those things that came in his life ushered forth from a man who desired to glorify God. That's very clear. Our confession says, what is man's, I mean the shorter catechism says, what is man's chief end? And he said, and it says, man's chief end is to glorify God and, and enjoy Him forever. Okay, so he's a great man. Y'all see that in the text? I mean, that's a lot of camels. I'd hate to have to keep up with all those camels without a computer. All the, all the servants, ten kids. But notice, he was also a great man of integrity. It says, this was a man in the land of us whose name was Job. That man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. That's what, the people recognize him as this. But you know what's very interesting is if you go down further in our text, when Satan uh, comes to God that we'll look at, very important part of the text, uh, and uh, he he says, hey, where are your servants that serve you? And he says, hey, have you checked my Job out? And then he, he says the same thing about Job. Have you considered my servant that there's none like him on the earth, blameless and upright, who fears God and turns away from evil? Now, I, I, I know I've mentioned this before. I, I read a book, and I've read it several, several times, maybe three or four times. But I'm really glad I read it right when I went into the ministry. It was a book called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Uh, and, and there are there are certain things that we set in our life and our course if we're to plow our way through, just like the farmer who plows the ground and plants 
and nurtures uh, with water and fertilizer and harvest. But what he said in the very uh, first chapter is that you begin with the end in mind. You, you think about when you die or you're, you're at your funeral, what, that's, you back everything up from there. What do you want people saying about you? Oh, that, you are a, that you're a great banker? That you're a great preacher? That you're a great lawyer or a great doctor or a great teacher, whatever it may be? He said, what do you want them to say about you? He said, you know what you want them to say about you? Is my, my dad, my mom, they were consistent. <laughs> they were loving and caring people. So he says this is important to order your private world. I mean, you know, if you can do great things, but you're doing everything on the slide and you're doing anything in a haphazard way, a lot of us can do things because you're so gifted that you don't need a lot of discipline. You're just real smart. You, you can remember everything. But there's no integration, no integrity in that. And so you live a life of uncertainty. You're always a little bit uneasy. But not Job. Job was a man who knew God was in covenant with him. He knew who God was. But notice that these characteristics, and I have to be brief with them. Um, first off, it says that, that he, was, he was blameless. Now, in the English, it sounds like he never sinned. Now, if that were the case, then uh, Jesus would never have come because there would have been the perfect person. At least there would have been one. But the idea here of blameless is the same idea when Jesus says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they uh, shall see God. The word in, in the Greek for, for pure in heart is an undivided heart. The idea of blameless here is a man who's connected. Everything's operating off a center, which is to glorify God and to know God. Uh, Paul puts it this way in Romans chapter 12. If you're a believer, he says, uh, Therefore, because of your union with Christ, everything he said before that, make your body a living sacrifice. Constantly being centered upon, I'm here, you've redeemed me to give myself to you. We need men like that, don't we? Men who can say with Paul, the life I now live, I live by faith. I'm crucified with Christ. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. You, you see, it's not they're perfect men, but we meet men who are not double-minded about the gospel, that they believe the gospel's for them, and it's for you. And they're blameless in that belief. But also, he says that he was upright, and it's very important here. There's these words, they're there for a reason. The Hebrew word for upright is yatsar. And it literally means to be straight. It, it, is, it is Job's desire to line himself up to the ultimate straight edge of God's law. <clears throat> and you see, this is really the, the, the true way that you know you're a believer, is that you're always longing to straighten yourself up by the gospel. And of course, that's what keeps us uh, driven to Christ. But it's more than just uh, wanting to see... Uh, um, righteousness in your own life, but more so, it's wanting to see it in the community. 
Uh, Job was a man who was not just, hey, man, I'm accumulating all these things. He was an elder in the gate. He was concerned about justice, and he didn't like it when he didn't see it. So we need to choose men who not only take the responsibility of their family, and I'm going to tell y'all, y'all need to go thank these elders and deacons and women leadership at Redeemer. And I want to tell you why you should. Because you know what? You know how much responsibility you have in your family, don't you? Just to pay the bills. But to take on the responsibility of the bride of Jesus Christ. But not only that, but Redeemer should be a church that desires righteousness in the city. That's why we have downtown ministries and downtown academy. You would not believe the work that is done by some of the men and women of our church and agonizing over whether the bills will pay, be paid or teachers will be paid. Why? Because they know that God longs to see the poor taken care of. It's the kind of men we need. Not righteous men who are always just ethical, moral people. You know, I, I have to read this to you. I mean, can I tell you what Job says? What he's, Job says about himself. I want to go back to 29. And, and Job is explaining his desire for righteousness. Again, remember he's reminiscing, uh, mi- missing the days of being in the gate. Now everybody's casting them off, obviously. You screwed your life up. He said, how I long for the months gone by for the days when God watched over me when his lamp shone on my head. And by his light I walked through darkness. Oh, for the days when I was in my prime, when God, intimate friendship, blessed my house. When I went to the city gate and took my seat in the public square, young men saw me and stepped aside. The old men rose to their feet. The chief men refrained from speaking and covered their mouths. The voices of nobles were hushed. Whoever heard me spoke well of me. And then he tells you why. Because I rescued the poor who cry for help. And the fatherless who have none to assist them. The one who is dying blessed me. I made the widow's heart sing. I put on righteousness as my clothing. Justice was my robe and my turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy. I took up the case of the stranger. I broke the fangs of the wicked and snatched the victims from their teeth. And I was like one who comforts mourners. How can he say that about himself? How arrogant. Let me tell you why he could say it about himself. Because it was true. We don't just need men who know Reformed theology or can know a little bit about the catechism or can talk about the five points of Calvinism. We need men whose hearts break for the afflicted and the wounded in our city. Hard to find men like this. But he was a man who knew God. He feared God. And, 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 uh, and I'll just say this about that. I know I've mentioned this before, uh, but when I went to seminary, one of my first days of class, I know I said this many times over the 18 years, but the most profound thing I heard from Dr. Sanderson was when he said, gentlemen, you are what you think about God. You know, a lot of you are flitting around. It's because you don't have a high view of God. You don't think he's sovereign. He's not going to hold you account. You don't think he's worthy of your life. 
But great thoughts of God to live in fear, which means to be in awe of God. And to move toward Him is to let go of all these other things. And thus the text ends, that verse ends by saying, He flees from evil. Hard to find men like that. But, but I want to say one other thing. And i tell you what I'm going to do, because I want to do this text justice here. I'm going to do what I do from time to time. I'm going to come back to it. Can I do that? Because I'm really just on point two. But I want to say this. He was a man who loved his family. Wow, what great. You know, if if God loves his wife and his kids, he's going to love you. If he doesn't love his wife and his kids, he's probably not going to love you. If he's more interested in his own glory and his own greatness and this and that. And and then ends up raising his children like uh, we've got to get them in the best schools and the best colleges. And we've got to do this and that and the other. and Completely training their children, not in the things of God, but in the things of the world. So they don't have this view of life as fleeting and short and there's evil and we are to send those arrows out of our, our quiver, sending them out as salt and light into the world. Why? Because we don't really get how God can impact a family. Now where do I see this? Well, you see it in the fact that his ten children like to hang out together. <laughs> Right? Is it saying that? They, they, they were always getting together and they were feasting and having a great time. Apparently, what it was? It was their birthday party. So that's a lot of, you know, that's at least a party a month. But unlike so many of our families, everybody kind of can't stand each other. But here's a man, Job, who, who, who was successful, but that wasn't the center of his life. Uh, and yet, God blessed that. Uh, here's a man who, his, who loves his family, and, and apparently they love one another. We don't need ethical men. That's important. We don't need moral men. We, need, we don't need nice men. We need new men. We don't need uh, good men, but different men. In such a way that even their children can rebel because they know their parents love them. And uh, it doesn't mean that your children won't necessarily rebel. I'm not saying, hey, we need to have a guy whose children never do anything wrong. I'm not saying that. But there is this overall tenor that's there. And one last thing about his love for his family. You know what he used to do after they had parties? He worried about them. Because what was most important to Job is that nothing would come in the way of their relationship with God Almighty because that's what mattered. And so it says he would rise up early in the morning. Y'all see that in that text there? If you look there, this is why I'm just on verse 5. It says, And when the days of the feast would run their course, Job would sin and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them, all for Job said, "If may be that my children, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts." And then it says, "What?" Thus Job did continually. He was a man who lived in reality, folks. 
He loved his family. He loved his community. And yet we're going to see next week, because I can't do it today, he gets obliterated. What will happen to him? Stay tuned. Let's pray.